do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to move around a little bit. Like I say, there are some passages I want to look at this morning. And, you know, it's kind of tricky. It's Christmas, right? So how do you bring something new and fresh? And I have those who will hold me accountable that I don't just redo stuff. And if I give you leftovers, I'm admonished that I must at least warm them up before I give them to you. Well, I plan on taking you to the passages that... I don't think you would probably think of if you think of Christmas, but for me, they are passages that I go back to, at least for my own soul, and so that is what we'll do this morning. Next week is an uh, enjoyable time because then it is when we will read Scripture and just listen to the Word of God, and then we will respond in song. And I'm going to sort of follow along in that strain this morning in that I just want to look at these texts and let them speak for themselves, I, so I won't elaborate much. At least I don't plan on it. Uh, but there are plenty more notes that we are going to cover this morning. So I, my encouragement to you is to go back and, and dwell on these passages. But these are just basically reminders for my own soul in regards to Christmas. And one of the things that you know I think of about Christmas time is this time of celebration. Everyone's merry, everyone's joyous, and it is a time of celebration. We look at Luke's gospel, that is what we find. We find revelation given by God, and then we have this response of song, and we have these great hymns at the beginning of Luke's gospel. So we see that Christmas should be a time of worship and celebration for us. But with all of the celebration that can go on in our home, sometimes we forget that there are those who are really suffering and hurting. It is interesting to me that at Christmas time, the, there is an increase in suicides around this time of the year. Because not everyone has family to, to spend time with, not everyone has a place to go, not everyone has a happy life, not everyone has a happy wife and happy kids. They have their suffering and their misery. And one of the things that I appreciate about the scriptures is that they are very genuine. Not only do they tell us the truth, but they are very genuine because they, they reveal everything to us. And, and they tell us everything about whatever God wants to communicate to us. And when it comes to Christmas, there's nothing hidden about the pain that was there. And there was pain there. And we need to acknowledge that. And we know that when Christ came, He came to die and to bring life to those who are dead spiritually. He came to rescue those who are perishing. He came to heal the sick. He came to deliver those from the grasp of Satan and to deliver the blow of judgment upon Satan. We know these things to be true. And so the first Christmas doesn't ignore these things. And when you read the Psalms, there is much of this truth in there. And the first Christmas, the pain wasn't hidden. 
And if we try to just sort of visualize and, and think about what they went through when they went through this, I mean, if you just take Mary, she gets the message from the angel Gabriel of what was going to come. So no doubt there was excitement and anticipation of what was going to happen. But there was also confusion and misunderstanding. There were things that she was pondering, things that she was trying to come to grips with. She knew that what she was going to take on upon herself was not something that was going to be easy. As she began to show, she was betrothed, but she wasn't married yet. It wasn't consummated. Her neighbors who are watching her were now going to see, and it was going to become evident. And all of a sudden, the whispering would come, the judgments would come. And if you just think about her life and the things that she would have gone through in the midst of all of this, we look back and think of all the joyousness of it. But sometimes we forget of what these people walk through, Mary and Joseph, as they walk through this time together. And even when you think about Christ, right, decades later, when he bested his enemies, right, those that, that were challenging him and questioning his authority and so on, their response to him in John's Gospel, chapter 8, verse 41, we were not born as a result of sexual immorality. Thirty some odd years later, this was still following Jesus around. Can you imagine what it was doing to Mary all these years? That this would follow her around? But the Scriptures doesn't hide this from us, right? We, we see that there's going to be pain and suffering. There's the humbling of Bethlehem. There's the flight to Egypt. There's the slaughter of the baby boys by Herod. There is the sword that is going to pierce even Mary's own soul as a pronouncement that came from Simeon. There was going to be suffering that came with all of this joyousness. But here's the amazing thing. And the first passage I want to take you to is Genesis chapter 3. And Christmas reminds me that there is hope. With all the suffering that can be coming in the world, we need to know that there is hope. With the sin and the mess that sin brings into our life, and we all know this is what it does to us. Sin is messy, but God has made a way. There is hope for those whose, whose life is a mess. When you look back to Genesis chapter 3, this is after the fall, and we have turmoil in a household. You have one brother kills the other brother, right? And then you move to chapter 4 after the fall, and you have Lamech, who now has got two wives instead of one wife, like God designed. We already have polygamy. And all of this happening in the midst as society is progressing and thriving, as we're told about Lamech's sons, who developed in implements to make life easier, right? Tools to work with to make life more productive and also instruments so that life could be more merry. But while all of this is going on and it seems like man is advancing in civilization, when we look at the passage in Genesis chapter 4, we see the moral decline in the midst of this. Is this not now? We look around us and look at the things that we can do with our own telephone, right? never ceases to amaze me that wherever I go, I can always access a Bible and I can always access study aids. It doesn't matter where I'm at, I can do this on my telephone. And yet, when you look all around, we see the depravity of man that surrounds us. But God has provided a hope for us. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, there's dramatic changes that happen in regards to man. There's change in man's emotions, his intellect, his will, his environment and his relationships both vertical and horizontal. And in this passage, Genesis chapter 3, if you go back in your mind's eye, this is what we find in chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. We find a guilty conscience. We find a guilty verdict. We find a guilty sentence upon the serpent, then upon the woman, then upon man. But in the midst of all of this, God gives hope. 
And it's in the midst of the curse to the serpent that we get the words of hope. That God declares prophetically in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This is the first gospel proclamation that we have. This is the hope in the midst of all of the sinfulness. In a passage where guilt surrounds it, we have this message of hope. And for me, this is one of the passages I go back to when I think about Christmas because this is the deliverance that Christ came to give us. The redemption and the restoration and the reconciliation. And we know that as time progresses, this became even more clear in God's revelation as he makes known to us what he's going to do. This is no doubt a prophecy of the Messiah. This is the seed of the woman, not the man, which I find very intriguing about this. It traces her seed, not his seed. And it's her seed that's going to bruise Satan on the head. And so this is, if you will, a prophecy veiled that scripture is going to unfold and become more and more clear for us. Not only that, but in 315, God says, he singular, a particular seed of the woman, shall bruise Satan on the head and Satan will bruise him on the heel. This no doubt is referring to Christ as Paul is going to pick this up in Galatians chapter 4 as he reveals that this is the redemption that God is going to give us. There is hope. There is the reminder for us, even going back to Genesis, to the very beginning when we have the record of the fall, we find that no matter what happens, Scripture is not going to ignore the pain and the suffering in our life. Christmas doesn't ignore these things, but it provides for us a hope and a joy that is deeper than our sorrow and more glorious than the situations that we can find ourselves in. There are those in our life who need to hear this message. There are family members who we might be around this time of the year who we won't normally see, that we have an opportunity to share with them this truth, this message of hope, and this message of joy. And Christ is the only one who provides that. Another passage I want to take you to is 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Now I'm sure that if you think Christmas, this is probably not a passage that you would think to go to. But it has everything to do with the coming of Christ. Because it is a time of, of Christmas when we think about giving, right? It is a time when we want to give gifts to our loved ones to show them our, our love for them and appreciation for them, to shower them with these things. And this is a time in which we should be giving. But not just during the month of December, not just on one particular day, but every day of our life. And this is why I come to this passage, because it reminds me that I must be a gracious giver. Sometimes I do it reluctantly because I know this is what God wants. Sometimes I do it because, right, this is the right thing to do. But this passage is so staggering to me. Not only the examples that it gives in regards to giving, but the, the drive and the motivation that's supposed to drive us to giving is the sense that we get total delight from doing this. And we'll see this in this passage. So the Corinthians, and I just have to remind you, this section that, that Paul is dealing is that you have those in Jerusalem and, and Judea, the surrounding area. There is a famine that strikes and there are people in need. There are those who are poor, those who are destitute, those who need provision. And so Paul is canvassing all the churches and he is providing a means to deliver them from the midst of this. And so the, the church in Corinth, they find out about this and they have the, the, the intention that they want to do something about this, but they need to come to fruition with this. They need to act on it. 
And so they expressed their desire to do this. So as Paul writes this letter, this is what he's addressing in these two chapters. And it's interesting that he begins with two examples. But he is going to talk about the fact that there, we are to be abounding or excelling in this grace of giving. And it is a grace response in regards to people's needs. But in chapter 9, verse 7, he says, Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. We're going to come and look at these different elements. And I'm just going to just highlight a couple things that are in this passage. To me, there's such a powerful truth here in regards of giving. Because it really does challenge me. Because when I think that I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing, I realize that I go through the right actions, but the attitude isn't there that's supposed to be there. And all of it must be a package deal, right? It's from the inside out. And this is what the exhortation that comes in this passage helps us to understand. So Paul is going to deal with the gracious giving of God's people. And he gives us a couple examples in chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And he says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. This is the church of Thessalonica, but also the church of Philippi. And if you know anything about the Philippian church in the letter of Philippians, these were a giving people. From the moment they came to Christ, Paul says, You were with me. All the way through, and they were ones who always support him in the ministry. Paul goes on to say in chapter 8, verse 2 and following, In the midst of a very severe trial of affliction, their abundance of joy, their deep poverty, overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, think about what Paul is saying here. This is why I come to this passage. These are some strong descriptions that he gives here. And these are illustrations of those who give and the kind of giving that we should do. And I take the principle into every dimension of my life. How should I be a giving person to other people with my time, finances, whatever it is, my household, all of that. He goes on to say in verses 3 and following, he says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, with much urgency begging us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people. They begged to be able to give. He goes on to say in verse 5, And they exceeded our expectations, and they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. This is an important element in, in the process of this. As he gives these believers in Macedonia, the Philippian church in Thessalonica, that this is an important element, that they gave themselves over to the Lord first, and then to the apostles. In other words, as they gave in this way, they trusted God. Because when we look at the description of the, the situation that they were in, they weren't in a situation to be giving anybody anything, but they did. And therefore, they would need to trust in God to provide for them. So notice what he says he describes them. We start in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. They gave under very unfavorable circumstances. Now, I'm kind of nice in the wording here unfavorable circumstances. But notice how Paul describes it. And a great deal of affliction, their deep poverty. As he goes on to describe it in the Greek, and I'm not going to pull all the elements apart for you, but this is a deep down poverty. In other words, they were at the point of being beggars themselves, of being out there begging for somebody to give to them. They were in that much of need. And as Paul describes it, it was deep down. You can't get any deeper in depravity and, and poverty than this. And so then he goes on to describe, though they were afflicted, verse uh, 
3 of chapter 8, Though afflicted and poor, they gave largely. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they were impoverished. Paul says they were in the state of being beggars themselves. And yet not only did they give of their own ability, they gave beyond their ability. So just just think about this, right? I mean, because sometimes I will give out of my surplus, and that's really easy for me to do. I've paid all the bills, I've done everything I need to do, and now I have extra left over, now I'll share with whoever needs around me. Or maybe I give out of being flush. Well, I've got everything covered, and yeah, we can dip into a little of this or a little of that, and then we can give, but that's not the state these people were in. They were in deep poverty, and it was out of this that he says they overflowed in richness of liberality. This is the widow, right, who gave her two mites, and Jesus says to the disciples, behold, Everyone else gives out of their surplus. And Mark, as he records it, he says, she gave her life. She's a widow. There's no one to take care of her. This is the last bit of money she has. And she offers it up. I always, when I come to this passage, remind myself of Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor, before he went to China, really, he he desired to, to get himself in the mindset of trusting God. Because he knew that in in China he was going to go into a region that that was never touched with the gospel before. He he was going to be there on his own. And so therefore he had to really learn how to depend on God. And he had worked with a doctor at the time. And he was training before going out of the mission field in the area of medicine. And the doctor owed him some money. And Hudson Taylor decided, I'm not going to remind him. I'm going to trust God to put it on his heart to, to, to pay me. And weeks went by and he didn't get paid. And all of a sudden, he lived down in the slums during this time. And someone came to his door as a young kid. And he said, you need to come to, to our, our cottage because my mother's in need. So Hudson Taylor, because he had some medical training, went with the young boy to this family's home. And he walks in and found that this woman had just given birth. But she couldn't feed the baby. She had no milk because she was deprived of food and therefore she had no nourishment for the baby. And the husband's distraught and the other kids are crying and the mother, right, is overcome with the fact that she cannot provide for her baby. And Hudson Taylor in that moment, he realized that he had a little bit of money left in his pocket, but it's all he had. And he deliberated in his own heart and mind, should I give him this? But I only have this and the doctor hasn't paid me. It's been weeks and I don't even know if he's going to remember. And how am I going to buy any food to eat? But he gave him the money out of his pocket. And the husband went and brought food so that the wife could be nourished, so that the baby could be taken care of. And when he reflected back on this, and this is what got me, when he thought back in that moment, he was so upset with himself that he even deliberated over it. He said, I cannot believe that I even had to think about it. You know the amazing thing after that happened? A couple days after that, it's pouring rain outside. He gets a knock on the door and someone hands him an envelope. And there is writing on the front, but the rain had smeared the ink so he didn't see the name on it. And it was full of money. Lesson number one, trust God. Commit yourself to the will of God, right? And then give. Give out of your poverty and deep liberality. Verse 3, he says this in chapter 8, they gave voluntarily. They gave of their own accord. There's nothing that I had to do to compel them to do this. 
This was without urgent appeal. I didn't have to come to these people and say, you need to do this. They wanted to do it. Therefore, verse 4, he says this, they begged for the privilege of giving. How often do you beg for the privilege of giving to somebody else in need? Most often, I have to be convinced to loosen up my grip a little bit. Rarely am I begging for the opportunity to do something to help somebody else out. And mind you, these people are impoverished. They're in the state of being beggars themselves. But they also know that there are other people in need and they want to be a part of that. They want to share in that support. So they beg to Paul. And I find this so fascinating. The word that Paul uses here in the Greek in reference to begging, and it's good that the NASB translates it that way, it has the idea of this felt need. It's middle voice. You feel this need yourself. You understand that there is a lack, right? Some of us as dads, as fathers, right, and husbands, providers of the home, we know there are times we felt this, right? You have this felt need. I need to provide. There is a lack in this household. I cannot take care of my kids and provide for them what is needed. This is the feeling, right? And then then comes that cry, that, that pleading, that begging, right? I need God, right? But here's what's amazing. He uses this word in regards to their begging to be able to give, not to receive so when they should have been begging to receive something, they were begging to give something in the midst of their poverty. This is why I go to this passage every Christmas. Because I need this checkup. Because I, I so often think that I'm a giving person, but then when I really look at the text... I realize I haven't even scratched the surface yet. And isn't it interesting how many areas of our life where we walk into with the concept and the thought of receiving something. I go to work expecting to receive my pay. I come home expecting to receive something from my wife, expecting to receive something from my kids. I go to church expecting to receive something. And when we don't receive, we get upset. We become bitter. We become angry. We become discontented, right? What if we walked into every one of those moments with this desire to give? Imagine how radical your life would be then, right? And imagine the impact that would have on other people. He goes on to say then in verse 2 that they gave much with much joy, that in great ordeal of affliction their abundance, I, this is an interesting word, superfluity of joy. This word is used of rivers that overflow their banks. They were so excited to be able to give. Verse 5, they gave themselves as well as their monetary contribution. The gracious gift that drove them was the gift of Christmas. This is Christ. Verses 8 and following, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So this is Paul talking to the church of Corinth. I'm not commanding you, I just want you to see what other people have done. This is the Macedonians, this is God. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. 
Have we ever been impoverished so that someone else might benefit and become rich from our poverty? (laughs) This is Christmas. This is what it's about. This is the reason for the season. This is the greatest gift of all. And so often we can forget that gift that he gave us. The Savior's wealth, though he was rich, right? We're talking about pre-existing glory when we look at the Gospel of John. He shared love and fellowship with God the Father. Why in the world would he want to come down here? I mean, he condescended to become man among men. He walked in a sinful world among his creatures that he created, every single one of them, and not one of them recognized their creator. And then when he went to his own people, they rejected him. Even though they had a whole Old Testament full of revelation about his coming. They didn't receive it. The wealth of divine power, the dignity, the love that he had with the Father. And I know we cannot understand this. We just cannot understand what he gave up. But we must try. We must try to understand what it was like for him to condescend, to come down here for us. And the only way that Paul can describe it is to use words like impoverishment. And he uses the same word that he described the the Macedonian believers with. He uses to describe Christ is that he became poor for us. Why? So that we could benefit from that. So that we could become rich. We look at all the wealth and we celebrate the things that we have in Christ and all the blessings that are ours in Him and that we know that we never walk alone and that we have everything for time and eternity. If we go to 1 Corinthians in the early chapters, we possess everything because we possess Him. And then comes the the practical influence of all of this, right? The consideration of our Savior's grace in light of those who also responded to our Savior's grace. The poverty that made others rich. Am I willing to graciously give this way? And Paul makes sure he uses the word grace because it's not earned. It's not merited. There's a lot of people out there I don't want to give to. Now, if they were working a job and doing everything they were supposed to do and all of that kind of stuff, and they were in a point where they needed something, then I might not have a problem giving to them. But what if they're not doing that? What if they're not a productive citizen of society? So then what do I do? The poverty that made others rich. The gracious giving God's desire and God's glory. We're going to end with this. I'm going to leave you with Philippians to to ponder on. It's pretty evident. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, we have the desire of God. He says this, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is, I mean, the statement, God loves this kind of person, right? That should cause me to stop. Because I want to be that person. I want to be the kind of person that God delights in, that God loves. But then he goes on to say, and this is what the kind of person God loves. He doesn't merely just love a giver. He loves a cheerful giver. I don't know about you, but there have been a lot of times I've given begrudgingly. (laughs) All right, Lord, fine, great. 
And it always seems like when there's something a little bit extra, right? And so I have even trouble parting with this, the surplus that comes into my life. God makes a provision. I have a surplus. I'm thinking, great, there's other things that we can do around the house. I've got spindles missing. I've got this. I've got to do that. got to do. And God finally gave a little bit of extra. And then all of a sudden, at the same moment, someone shows up at my door and they need it. Fine. <laughs> But in those moments, God doesn't say to me, stop giving until you get your heart right. He says to me, give and get your heart right. And it's interesting the word that Paul uses here, hilaron. It's where we get the English word hilarious from. I'm just giddy to give. Are you like that? When people are around you, what, what about your kids and your wife? If, if they were to evaluate your life, would they say that you're that kind of person, that you take great delight in giving to other people? That you just get giddy every time you get to give to someone? It's an absolute joy for you to give. Because this is what our God loves. It's this kind of person. In Luke chapter 6, verse 35, Christ reminds us of the Most High, our, our God and Father. He says this, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. <laughs> Not only do I expect in return, I want an extra percentage on that. And if you're late, I want a little bit more. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He Himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. He provides a house for my pagan neighbor, cars for my pagan neighbor, puts food on the table for my pagan neighbor. They don't thank him at all. Not only that, but they race their fists and fingers at him, right? They use his name as profanity. And yet he does what? He still gives to them. This is our God. He is a gracious giver. That's what he does. The highest kind of giving then comes from the bottom of the heart. The glory of God, we end with this. Notice this. All the way through this passage, chapter 9, go back and read it for yourself. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. In other words, God's praise for this. God's glorified when we give. He's glorified by other people. He's glorified by us. For the ministry of the service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. God is glorified. Verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God. Verse 14, while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you, thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. This is why we give, not so that we are glorified, so that He is glorified. And if somehow the attention is brought to us, we have failed. We have failed to give the way that God wants us to. You look at Philippians chapter 2. The end of all of it, right? He is exalted, every knee shall bow, tongue confess, but all of it is to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that amazing? This, brothers and sisters, is Christmas. This is what it is about. This is what the world needs to see from us. They need to see gracious givers. 
as we reveal to them the most gracious gift ever given. Amen? Dad, would you close in a word?